I'm going to tell you something. My life is changing and it's not great. Somewhere I live, the freedom of speech. Well, the next one. It still looks like a war zone here. It looks like ground zero. Well, the next round hit my husband, hit my soldier. Does he have a crush on me? No. Figures. I just believe I'll die for my cause. Hearing is seeing. From American Public Media, this is an American Radio Works documentary produced in cooperation with Public Television's Blueprint America Project and WNET.org. This great nation will endure as it has endured. Eighty years ago, another president faced an economic crisis. Our greatest primary task is to put people to work. Franklin Delano Roosevelt created jobs by building things. His new deal transformed America. There are relics all around us that we just don't see. Waterworks and schools and parks and police offices and city halls. I'm Stephen Smith. In the coming hour, Bridge to Somewhere from American Radio Works. First, this news. All right, what school are you guys from? Hendrick Hudson High School. Hendrick Hudson High School. Well, welcome. We're standing just outside Franklin D. Roosevelt's home in Hyde Park, New York, on the country estate that he lived in a couple hours north of New York City in the Hudson River Valley. Don't touch anything, no pictures, no gummer candy, all right? We're following behind a group of high school students touring the place. What do you think about when you think about the New Deal? What kinds of programs that he enacted? A lot of people in America are looking back at Roosevelt and his administration and how they responded to the Great Depression as a way of understanding what America might need to do now in this time of economic crisis. A lot of the things that are happening when Franklin Roosevelt was president are happening now. From American Public Media, this is an American Radio Works documentary, Bridge to Somewhere, produced in cooperation with Public Television's Blueprint America Project and WNET.org. I'm Stephen Smith. In the Great Depression of the 1930s, Franklin Roosevelt's administration launched an enormous, unprecedented campaign of national construction. Now, today, President Barack Obama is also trying to stimulate the national economy by repairing the nation's infrastructure and expanding it. He, like Roosevelt, wants the nation in part to build its way out of the economic downturn. Joining us on a walkthrough of the Franklin Roosevelt Museum here in Hyde Park is the library and museum's director, Cynthia Cook. We're heading into the gallery that is set up to look like a 1930s kitchen. Uh-huh. And it focuses on the radio addresses, the first, first fireside chat on banking. You people must have faith. You must not be stampeded by rumors or guesses. Let us unite in banishing fear. The radio was new technology for people. People had been used to listening to their politicians speaking oratorically. It wasn't something that was conversational. He knew that he could sit down in a, in a room and people could gather around their radios and literally have these, these chats that came to be known as fireside chats. We have provided the machinery to restore our financial system, and it is up to you to support and make it work. It is your problem, my friends, your problem no less than it is mine. Together, we cannot fail. They listened, they responded by writing back to him, and suddenly, for the first time, there was a conversation with an American president. The letters came, you know, flowing into the White House, Previously, there had been a, you know, a mailroom with one staff in it, and suddenly 70 were needed to handle the, the flow of correspondence. Roosevelt's political popularity enabled him to push through big building programs that profoundly changed the country, and we are still living with those changes today. Good morning. May I buy a postcard stamp, please? Sure. Thank you. We've come to the United States Post Office in Poughkeepsie, New York, which is just a few miles down the Hudson River from Hyde Park, from Franklin Roosevelt's home. This post office was one of many, many post offices built by the big public works program that FDR launched in the Great Depression. With me here in the Poughkeepsie Post Office is producer Catherine Winter, producer of this documentary. Catherine, tell us a bit about the post office. Well, as you can see, it's just a beautiful building with marble columns and murals depicting the history of this region. One thing that's especially interesting about this post office is how intimately involved with its construction Roosevelt himself was. Uh, Some people might even have used the word interfering. (laughs) He wanted the building to be educational and beautiful as well as functional. 
And that's typical of structures that were built during the New Deal. Now, of course, the idea, in addition to educating the public, was to put the public back to work in huge numbers as quickly as possible in in, uh, the Great Depression. Over the next hour, Catherine will be looking at how New Deal projects transformed America 80 years ago, how they essentially remade the future for whole regions of the country and especially for the people involved in the building projects. Catherine, as you've looked at this catalog, what has surprised you the most? The thing that surprised me the most was the sheer vastness of it. One agency alone, the Public Works Administration, claimed to have had a project in all but three counties in the country. And then some of the projects themselves built by the New Deal agencies are surprising. For example, there's the Riverwalk in San Antonio. There's LaGuardia Airport, Reagan National Airport. Uh, The French market in New Orleans was spruced up by the New Deal. And there's a surprising legacy of the New Deal in Vermont. That one was left by Roosevelt's first and his most popular New Deal agency, the Civilian Conservation Corps. He sketched out the plans for that agency on his inauguration day. The retiring president and the president-elect ride together from the White House with congressional escort down the long and proud-packed Pennsylvania Avenue to the Capitol, where Roosevelt is to take the oath of office. Enthusiasm is at its height. Never was there such a joyful, jubilant, yelling, applauding inauguration crowd. Roosevelt is the nation's idol here today. This newsreel from FDR's inauguration in 1933 shows Roosevelt grinning in an open car beside a sullen Herbert Hoover. The country had just given Hoover the boot for failing to end the Great Depression. Roosevelt swept into office on a promise to help the forgotten man. This great nation will endure as it has endured, will revive and will prosper. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. In his inaugural address, Roosevelt said only a foolish optimist could deny the dark realities of the moment. Many families had lost their life savings. Many farmers couldn't sell their produce and let the food rot. Factories closed. Most working people saw their salaries or hours cut back. A quarter of American workers could not find jobs at all. Our greatest primary task is to put people to work. This is no unsolvable problem if we face it wisely and courageously. The new president wanted to get people back to work by stimulating private industry. His administration tried various methods, including this 1933 film from the National Recovery Administration, featuring Jimmy Durante. Step out in front, get back of the president, and give a man a job. He bore the brunt, now bear with the president, and give a man a job. If the old name of Roosevelt makes the old heart proud, You take this message straight from the president and give a man a job. The president wanted private industry to hire people, but he also believed that to create enough jobs, the government itself was going to have to hire people. Roosevelt thought that was preferable to a dole. He believed in the dignity of work. In his second fireside chat, he told his radio audience about his plan for the Civilian Conservation Corps. First, we are giving opportunity of employment to a quarter of a million of the unemployed, especially the young men who have dependents, to let them go into forestry and flood prevention work. Historian Robert Leininger has written about the physical legacy of the New Deal. He says the CCC was meant to address two of Roosevelt's key concerns, conservation and jobs. The idea was to take young men, uh, organize them into groups of about 200, give them some uh, basic fitness training, and ship them out to our national parks and, and national forests and other places in the rural and semi-rural landscape and have them plant trees, make fish ponds, fight forest fires, uh, build roads, build uh, recreational facilities. The CCC turned out to be the most popular New Deal program. Local politicians scrambled to get CCC projects in their regions. Hundreds of thousands of young men signed up. Many of them were desperately poor, like Emerson Baker. Baker's in his 90s now. 
He was 12 years old, living in Gloucester, Massachusetts, when the stock market crashed. My father had had left us and left my mother with uh, four girls and me. You know, we just had no, uh, nothing at, at all. Baker's mother did laundry for other families, and he did what odd jobs he could find, like packing fish and working in a grocery store. And in the summertime, I caddied on the local golf links. But outside of that, we didn't have any income at all. Uh, organizations like the Catholic Daughters and a few other uh, religious organizations that heard about our circumstances would bring food and canned stuff and that once in a while. At the time, it was assumed that charities would help poor people. There was no such thing as federal welfare and no social security. But private charities were overwhelmed. Too many people needed help. Emerson Baker remembers hearing about the CCC on the radio. After he finished high school, he signed up and was sent to a camp in Vermont. It was a different world. Oh, yeah, we had to learn not to get friendly with porcupines and woodchucks and things like that. And we would hear wolves howling at night and, what's that? They didn't know how to operate a saw. They didn't know how to operate a uh, an axe. They had to be taught. That's Larry Benoit. He was in the CCC in Vermont, too. He was a farm boy, but most of the other recruits were from the city. Benoit helped teach the other guys to use cross-cut saws. And they didn't like that idea of going through the woods uh, shoveling snow that are about five feet deep to the bottom of a tree to cut it down. They used to bring out our food in great big thermos containers, and we'd eat out, out in the cold. That's Herb Hunt. He was a city kid, but he found he liked working in the Vermont forests with the CCC. They gave us, they do supply us with good warm clothes, you know, heavy wool, green uh, clothes and long john underwear. You know, we were, and it, in the barracks at night, inside there would be two or three coal-burning stoves. And we had, the cots were all lined up. It was all open, you know. We had uh, very good breakfast and a very good supper. Great big tubs of food, like macaroni and cheese, uh, Whole potatoes, beef, salt pork, hams. They had it. Thanksgiving. You see two or three big turkeys sitting on your table. 25 or 30 guys supposed to eat that all them turkeys. No, we never was hungry. Those, especially those who came from very poor families, they started having meat and potatoes, and uh, which they probably never had at, at home, and uh, they became healthy. Some of them came in skinny like I am right now, and... And it went away rugged. Oh, yeah. Pictures from the time show young men showing off their new physiques by working shirtless, wielding shovels in the sun. Virginia. Inspiring his forest army by a personal visit, President Roosevelt makes his first tour of the Civilian Conservation Corps camps in the Shenandoah Valley. (laughs) This newsreel from 1933 shows FDR with his usual grin, shaking hands with one young man after another in a long line. After inspecting Skyland, the commander-in-chief takes a seat at the head of the table to eat with the boys. And he enjoys every bite of the plain, wholesome food furnished at the camp. It's very good to be here at these Virginia CCC camps. I wish I could see them all over the country. I hope that all over the country they're in as fine condition as the camps that I've seen today. I wish that I could take a couple of months off from the White House and come down here and live with them because I know I'd get full of health the way they have. The only difference is that they've put on an average of about 12 pounds apiece since they got here, and I'm trying to take off 12 pounds. (laughs) The CCC members made $30 a month, but they only kept five. The rest was sent directly to their families. That money paid the rent for Emerson Baker's mother. And the camps offered classes— Many young men learned to read and write in CCC camps. Others learned trades, like Larry Benoit. Went to school for learning how to pull wire, electrical, and do plumbing, mason work, brick work, to uh, learn how to operate jackhammers, Sullivan's, Ingatalls, drive truck, bulldozer. Many of the CCC members went on to careers using skills they learned in camp. Larry Benoit built highways. Emerson Baker learned to make maps in the CCC and became a mapmaker. Herb Hunt loved the woods of Vermont so much that he settled there. He raised dairy cattle and Christmas trees. But he also had a military career, like lots of other young men from the CCC. 
there were millions of boys, 17 to 20-year-olds, that went into there, and it got them to learn to live that kind of a life, in a barracks-type life or in the field and work together, and it was invaluable training as far as the Army was concerned. When the United States entered World War II, the CCC camps emptied out as young men enlisted. The CCC was disbanded in 1942. In the course of its nine years, more than three million young men passed through its camps. The things they built are still all around us, usually with no sign to say so. Emerson Baker. We built a lot of state parks, for instance, and we built all the buildings that were in them and picnic facilities, benches that we built in the 30s are still being used today. They did uh, things in the national parks and monuments to make things like Mammoth Cave more, more accessible with lights and walkways. Historian Robert Leininger. They stopped a lot of uh, forest fires from claiming a lot of uh, our natural resources. CCC members planted more than 3 billion trees. They built nearly 50,000 bridges and thousands of miles of roads and trails. In some places, the infrastructure they built is still an economic engine. On a spring Saturday at the Stowe Ski Resort in Vermont, the ski patrol's first aid room has a steady flow of customers, skiers and snowboarders who've had mishaps on the mountain. A 12-year-old boy is in with his mom. He holds a cloth to his nose. You told me your right ski came off and it hit your nose, right? Yeah. A man comes in in ski boots and a jacket with a white cross on the shoulder. My name is uh, Brian Lindner, and I'm on the ski patrol here at Stowe. And kind of unofficially, I serve as the uh, historian for uh, Stowe Mountain Resort. We head outside. And Brian Lindner says that the room we were just in used to be his bedroom more than 40 years ago. Well, I actually grew up in the base lodge at Stowe because uh, this is a uh, state forest and my dad was the uh, forest ranger here for 20 years after World War II. We had an apartment in the north end of the base lodge and that's where we lived from the time I was born until I was 10 years old. The log building itself dates from even farther back, well before Brian Lindner's time. It was built by the CCC. Well, Stowe really uh, wouldn't be here, or at least it wouldn't have started when it did without the CCC, uh, because they were in place here in Vermont, and they were essentially looking for something to do. And our chief forester at the time, a guy by the name of Perry Merrill, had uh, been an exchange student in Scandinavia, and he had seen what the Scandinavians were doing with alpine skiing. So two things got married. Perry Merrill and his vision of skiing, and the CCC. CCC workers started clearing the first ski trail in Vermont here on Mount Mansfield in 1933. They cut the trees and pulled the stumps out, by hand or using mules or dynamite. Some of them must have thought the idea was crazy. Back then, there weren't a lot of people skiing. There weren't any chairlifts in Vermont or anywhere else. Well, until 1940, everybody at Stowe, if they wanted to take a run, had to hike the mountain. And maybe on a good day, you could get in two runs. If you were really athletic, you could get in three runs. But it was hike up, ski down. The small log building was finished in 1940, and the first chairlift went in soon afterward. Skiing became wildly popular. Hotels and restaurants cropped up to serve the skiers. Today, skiers generate a third of the tourist revenue here. And tourism is a cornerstone of Vermont's economy. Oh, Stowe has changed like you can't imagine since I was a boy living in the base lodge. Um, Today we have modern lifts. Um, I mean, we have a whole new hotel complex right here at the ski resort. The complex here at Spruce is massive, but it's something that we have to do to be competitive in today's ski world. Across the road from the old lodge, a huge new complex rises up on the mountainside, a lodge with condominiums and shops and a spa. The industry sparked by the CCC has long since outgrown the little base lodge the men built. But the lodge is still there, and skiers still use it when they're on that part of the mountain. Former CCC member Larry Benoit visits the lodge sometimes. I mean, I don't go skiing. I walk around in there and I, I look at the things that we built. Benoit still visits the site of the camp he lived in sometimes, too. The buildings are gone, but over the years, he's found things that the CCC recruits left behind. Out on his back porch among the chickadee feeders, there's an axe and a hatchet he found. There's a cross-cut saw he painted with the words, Lost by a CCC boy. And that saw 
Lost by a CC boy. I went back and found it. Knew where it was, where it was lost. You found it in the woods? Yeah, I knew right where it was. This is 50, 45, 50 years later. Benoit is 84 now. He was just 15 when he joined the CCC. You were supposed to be 17, but he lied about his age. He says the CCC made him who he is. That's why the license plate on his truck says CCC boy. I put it on there a long time ago. And I've had it like that ever since. Never forget it. As long as I live, I will never forget the CCs, what they taught me. Even though they were poor and the times were tough and the work was hard, a lot of former CCC members will tell you it was the best time of their lives. Some of them still get together at alumni association meetings. Emerson Baker runs a local chapter. He tears up sometimes when he talks about those years. Baker says when he meets another CCC alum, they're instantly friends. We have a basis of commonality that everybody doesn't have, you know, because we all started out with nothing and, and became something, if you will. This is Stephen Smith. You're listening to Bridge to Somewhere from American Radio Works. This documentary is produced in cooperation with the public television project Blueprint America and WNET.org. Coming up... No greater attempt ever has been made by man to master the handiwork of nature. The New Deal transformed the Pacific Northwest, and it remade America. It didn't bring the Depression to an end, but it reduced the magnitude of it, and it enabled people to survive who would have had an impossible or very difficult time surviving without it. To find out more about the legacy of the New Deal, visit our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. You can also learn about what many say is a contemporary infrastructure crisis by checking out the Blueprint America project from PBS. And you can find that at our website as well, AmericanRadioWorks.org. Support for Bridge to Somewhere and Blueprint America was provided by the Rockefeller Foundation. American Radio Works is supported by the Batten Institute, the Research Center for Global Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business, www.batteninstitute.org. Our program continues in just a moment from American Public Media. There you go. From the crisp mountain air of Vermont, we are now in the sort of lovely Pacific breeze of Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. We're at the Casting Ponds and the Angler's Lodge, a place where people who do fly fishing come to practice their marksmanship. So can we talk to you guys for a minute? We're with Public Radio, and we're doing a uh, project about WPA structures that are still around today. And... This was actually part of the WPA project way back in the 1930s. And the club or the lodge and the uh, ponds were completed in 1938. So this is a practice field for a, a fly fisherman. It's practice pretty and much, they also hold competitive yeah. events. And mm-hmm. you can see it was designed by fly fishermen. These rings, of course, are all movable depending well, wait, upon... Let me ask you about that. It looks like out here there are some almost like hula hoops with colored mm-hmm. rings inside right. them. What are those for? That's, that's for, accuracy for accuracy casting. casting. To, to kind of put it in perspective mm-hmm. for other people, this to fly fishing would be what Forest Hills is to tennis, maybe. Absolutely. That's absolutely or what the right. Rose Bowl is Rose to college, Bowl is football. college football. If yeah, you're a musician correct. sitting in a Carnegie Hall. That's correct. This is the I, Carnegie without, Hall. Without yes. exaggeration. I that's, mean, that's correct. this is sacred ground for me. It's, it's it incredible. Is, it is. For me, too, either. Thanks, guys. Great. Thank you. Thank you. From American Public Media, this is an American Radio Works documentary, Bridge to Somewhere. It's produced in cooperation with the public television project Blueprint America and WNET.org. I'm Stephen Smith. So in this hour, we're looking at the massive infrastructure legacy, if you will, all the public projects that were built by Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal and how that legacy affects our lives today. So there were New Deal agencies like the WPA, the Works Progress Administration, the CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps. These really reshaped America's landscape. Gray Brecken, who is a historical geographer, is joining us here 
So talk about the New Deal sites in Golden Gate Park and especially these casting ponds and this Angler's Lodge. I knew that these casting pools were here in Golden Gate Park. I'd found them through walking through the park because most people aren't aware that they're here. They're kind of back in the trees. And then I was, when I was starting to do research on the project, I was back in the um, National Archives in Washington, just going through the photographs of WPA work. And lo and behold, there was a photograph of the casting pools in the lodge. And then actually from that, I began to find that the WPA, as in pretty much every park system in the country, improved all of Golden Gate Park. In fact, they worked in every park in San Francisco. There are relics all around us that we just don't see. Shall we go inside? Sure. Mm -hmm. So we're walking now into the Angler's Lodge, which is uh, the sort of rustic timbered building. Everything is very handmade, and the idea of that was to give as many people um, jobs as possible and to train them on the job too. But the main thing is to give people self-respect. There's an enormous emphasis on the dignity of labor. You can see, for example, there's a, a beautiful big fireplace Um, You can also see that um, on the shutters on the building, um, there are cutouts of trout. Yeah, that's lovely, sort of leaping trout. Leaping trout, and they're embossed on the concrete floor as well, too. The idea, of course, that this is all part of democratizing sports that had previously been only available for the elites. And this is what the WPA and the CCC did. They built facilities uh, for people, everybody, Um, The same would be true for horseback riding, for example. We have right near here a WPA-built stables. And previous to this, of course, only the elites would would be riding horses or have those facilities available to them. That's available to everybody. That's Gray Brecken, an expert on the New Deal and infrastructure. He's at the University of California, Berkeley. Now, in some parts of the country, the impact of the New Deal may seem relatively small. You've got a an angling lodge here, you might have a sidewalk there, a picnic shelter. But every day we use New Deal infrastructure, like airports, LaGuardia in New York, Reagan National in Washington. There's the Triborough Bridge in New York. There's the Outer Drive in Chicago, the Bay Bridge here in San Francisco, linking the city and Oakland. And in some cases, these really big New Deal projects, the infrastructure transformed the entire region they were built in. So for example, there are the hydropower dam projects, like in the Tennessee Valley, or along the rivers of the Pacific Northwest. Producer Catherine Winter is going to explain now how the New Deal profoundly changed both the economy and the landscape of the Northwest. She starts us out in Seattle. Seattle seems like a prosperous place. Fancy houses sit high on its hills with views of mountains and water. The city is high-tech and outdoorsy at the same time home of Microsoft and Starbucks and REI. A lot of people are doing well here, but not everybody. Thank you. On a chilly spring day in the university district, one corner of a parking lot is filled with tents. In the middle of the encampment, some homeless people sit around a fire. Uh, You're in Nicholsville. Right now we have 100 people. We have about about 75 tents and about 100 people. Nicholsville is named for Seattle's mayor, Greg Nichols. Resident Bruce Beaver says they named the place after the homeless encampments of the 1930s, which were named for President Hoover. Hooverville, Nickelville, it's about the same. Uh, these folks are everyday people. Some uh, have had foreclosures, like myself. Uh, some have uh, been on the streets for a while. Some have uh, just uh, came from other places and didn't have a place to go. And Nickelville took them in. Nickelsville fits in a small parking lot. Hoovervilles were much larger, especially here in Seattle. Photographs from the 1930s show a city of shacks in what's now downtown Seattle. You can see men picking through trash. Thousands of people lived in that Hooverville. That name is a epithet uh, against the president who's seen as doing nothing to be able to help the poor people at the time. John Finley teaches history here at the University of Washington, a couple of blocks from Nicholsville. He says back in the 1920s, the Northwest wasn't industrialized. It provided raw materials to eastern cities, timber and coal and produce. Seattle was basically a logging town. Finley says the Depression hit hard here. People travel through here and find farmers burning their orchards, using the the trees for um, firewood because they can't sell the crops that they're harvesting to make a profit. They just go to waste. 
They find um, people setting forest fires so they can get hired to put the forest fires out. Um, public employees, um, there's no money to pay them. They take, you know, scrip or IOUs basically from the government. Across the country, a quarter of Americans were unable to find jobs. But in the Northwest, unemployment was even worse. The economic disaster led to a political sea change. In 1928, the Northwest had been solidly Republican. I think one or two counties in the three states of Oregon, Idaho, and Washington actually voted for the Democrat. By 1932, it's exactly the opposite. Only one or two counties in the whole region votes for whoever, everyone else votes for Roosevelt. So it's a tremendous political transformation. Roosevelt had courted the Northwest during his campaign. He told voters that if he was elected, he would do something to develop the Columbia River. And everyone understood that entailed building dams. Politicians and business people in the region had been trying to get money for dams on the Columbia for years. They wanted to irrigate farmland, and they thought hydropower would draw industry to the area. Finally, under Roosevelt, it looked as though the dams might be possible. The new president was promising to build public works projects all over the country to try to stimulate the construction industry and put people back to work. He talked about the public works plan in his second fireside chat. We are planning within a few days to ask the Congress for legislation to enable the government to undertake public works, thus stimulating directly and indirectly the employment of many others in well-considered projects. Well-considered projects like bridges and roads and dams. The first big building agency was the PWA, the Public Works Administration. Historian Robert Leininger says the PWA asked Americans to propose projects for the government to build, and people sent in ideas. One was uh, a rocket to the moon, and there was uh, one that proposed a mobile sort of roadway, sidewalk kind of a thing that would go from coast to coast, and uh, various facilities could be built up alongside it. Leininger says Roosevelt's advisors were expecting to get some loony proposals. And what surprised them was there were so few of them. Most of them were solid projects like waterworks and schools and parks and police offices and city halls and stuff like that. The PWA went on to build more than 30,000 projects, including what was at the time the biggest thing human beings had ever built anywhere, the Grand Coulee Dam on the Columbia River. No greater attempt ever has been made by man to master the handiwork of nature. No wonder our great writers, engineers, and scientists are calling Cooley Dam the eighth wonder of the world. This film, called Hold That River, was made when the Grand Coulee Dam was still under construction in the late 1930s. The camera pans across the dramatic country east of the Cascade Mountains. It's a desert of sagebrush and blowing dust. High rock ledges flank wide, dry valleys called coulees. When Grand Coulee Dam construction started in 1933, 34, there were no towns here. This was just kind of open land. There was, you know, a handful of homesteaders in the area. Tim Alling lives near the dam. He's retired from a job as a powerhouse operator. He and his 84-year-old mother are having coffee in her kitchen. Edith Lale grew up here. Her dad was a hired man on a sheep ranch. She remembers a day when she was eight years old and her family drove down to the river to watch the groundbreaking ceremony for the Grand Coulee Dam. They estimated there was 5,000 people came for that. There were people in wagons and some came on horseback just down there on the riverbank in the sagebrush and grass, <laughs> dust. When Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt visited the site in 1934, Eleanor was dismayed at the empty country. She's supposed to have remarked that whoever had sold that dam to Franklin was an awfully good salesman. But many people in Washington state were thrilled. President Roosevelt and Mrs. Roosevelt were greeted by a crowd of more than 10,000 people on his inspection of the dam site. Films and newspaper photos from the August day the Roosevelts visited show a group of nurses standing by in case anyone collapsed from the heat. Eleanor is holding a bouquet. Franklin talks with a native man in a headdress. The pictures show huge, cheering crowds. People must have driven hours to get there. Well, he was quite a hero. And it was exciting when there was jobs coming to construct a dam. <laughs> Edith Lale's dad got work, and so did thousands of other people. They came from all over the country and from Canada, hoping for jobs on the project. Other big PWA projects were getting underway around the country, too, but they weren't moving fast enough to kickstart the economy as much as Roosevelt wanted. So in 1935, he launched another public works program, 
the WPA, the Works Progress Administration. My most immediate concern is in carrying out the purposes of the great work program just enacted by the Congress. Its first objective is to put men and women now on the relief rolls to work and incidentally to assist materially in our already unmistakable march towards recovery. During one of his fireside chats, Roosevelt told his radio listeners that relief rolls were declining, but he acknowledged that unemployment was still a serious problem. So a new agency would do useful works and provide jobs. This is a great national crusade, a crusade to destroy enforced idleness, which is an enemy of the human spirit generated by this depression. Our attack upon these enemies must be without stint and without discrimination. The idea was that WPA workers would do smaller projects that were quicker to start up. They'd serve school lunches and sew clothes for poor people and build sidewalks and schools. Some of um, Roosevelt's advisors themselves actually used the image of well, what if we just scattered this money across the country um, from the air? You know, it would have a similar, you know, it would have an impact. Historian Jason Scott Smith. This idea really comes from John Maynard Keynes. If you simply put money into empty bottles, buried the bottles, and paid people to dig the bottles up and take the money out of the bottles and go spend it themselves, you would stimulate the economy. But Smith says building things with the money has other benefits. And Roosevelt thought that if the government were paying people to work, the work should be useful, something that would benefit everybody. Still, the idea drew fire from conservatives. The Roosevelt administration has thrown overboard the democratic platform and adopted a socialist communistic program under the name of a new deal. Here's the president of the New York Economic Council in a 1935 radio debate. This, of course, is nothing but the same old European and Asiatic tyranny from which our ancestors fled to America in order to establish real freedom. Critics said the government was interfering with private enterprise. In the mid-30s, officials defended the WPA in this radio broadcast. The Works Progress Administration invites you to attend an informal staff meeting of the air. Here's an exchange between the head of the WPA, Harry Hopkins, and the head of the Farm Bureau, Chester Gray. Gray says some farmers can't find hired hands because government programs like the WPA are luring workers away with higher wages. Hopkins acknowledges that has happened. But on the other hand, there have been many cases where farmers have raised a terrible rumpus because we did not kick unfortunate people off the jobs so that they might hire them at starvation wages. However, on both sides of this question, there has actually been a lot more smoke than fire. But what are you people going to do, Mr. Hopkins, when fellows refuse a decent farm wage? And you know, sometimes they do. Well, if a farmer can't get hands, he should state his case to his own local WPA officials because they have already been instructed that nobody is to have a WPA job who has refused private employment at a fair wage. You can be equally sure, though, that we are not going to kick anybody out of these low-paid jobs just so some bird can get a lot of cheap labor. And that goes not only for the farmer, but for any private employer. Critics also said people were getting government handouts to lean on their shovels and do nothing. The word boondoggle came into popular use during the New Deal to mean a silly make-work project. But historian Robert Leininger says most people liked the public works projects that were being built in their own towns. One journalist uh, said he was constantly looking for a a real boondoggle, but uh, he was always told it was in the next county. And when you get there, you was told there was one in the county further on. So uh, pork is in the eye of the beholder to some extent. Still, the program was controversial. A survey in 1939 asked Americans to name the best and worst things the Roosevelt administration had done. The number one answer for best thing Roosevelt had done was the WPA. And the top answer people gave for the worst thing the administration had done was the WPA. WPA workers wound up making films defending the program and the other building projects. Here's one from the late 30s. With the years of the Depression now fading into the past, with recovery definitely underway and the great victory clearly in sight, the nation begins slowly to realize that out of all the misery and horror of those many months, there is now emerging a vast planned achievement, an achievement of everlasting benefit to the American people. 
Never in all history has any people built it on a scale so colossal. The public works program of dam construction, typified by the mighty Grand Coulee on the upper Columbia River, is a program of such immensity as to be almost inconceivable. The Grand Coulee Dam continued to take shape across the river gorge, more than three-quarters of a mile long and 550 feet high. Workers poured enough concrete to build a sidewalk all the way around the earth. From Washington, D.C., the Columbia Broadcasting System brings you a report to the nation. Attention, citizens! In 1941, CBS Radio announced the dam's completion. And only three hours ago, the largest structure ever built by man, the Grand Coulee Dam in the state of Washington, started to work for your government for the first time two years ahead of original schedule. A few months later, the government hired a folk singer to write songs about its dams in the Pacific Northwest. Woody Guthrie had traveled with farmers forced off their land by drought during the Depression. People called him the Dust Bowl Troubadour. Now he wrote songs like Roll On Columbia and Grand Coulee Dam and The Biggest Thing Man Has Ever Done. I from the rocky canyon where the Columbia River rolls Seen the salmon leaping, the rapids and the falls The big Grand Coulee Dam in the state of Washington Just about the biggest thing that man has ever done this song runs through big events in history, and in one verse, Guthrie adds this. There's a man across the ocean, boys, I guess you know him well. His name is Adolf Hitler, we'll blow his soul to hell. We'll kick him in the panzers and put him on the run. That'll be the biggest thing that man has ever done. When the United States entered World War II, the need for electric power from the Columbia's dams became urgent. The country needed electricity to make aluminum for warplanes. And soon, power from Grand Coulee Dam was tapped for a secret project. Scientists chose a site on the Columbia River to work on a new kind of weapon. Historian John Finley. When the Manhattan Project thought about where to place the plutonium plant, it looked for places that were close to cheap sources of electricity and also large um, rivers that could cool the reactors and carry away some of the waste products and some of the heat. So that Columbia was a natural place to look. The plant on the Columbia was called the Hanford Nuclear Reservation. It produced plutonium. And it was used in the very first uh, atomic bomb that was tested at Trinity in New Mexico in July 1945. We are delaying the start of our scheduled program to bring you the latest direct report on the atomic bomb attack on Japan. Hanford's plutonium was also used on the bomb that was dropped in Nagasaki on August 9, 1945 and that effectively brought a conclusion to hostilities between the United States and Japan in World War II. The wartime industries that blossomed in the Pacific Northwest continued to thrive through the Cold War. Companies like Boeing Aircraft got a boost from defense contracts and from cheap electricity. The Northwest no longer had an economy that depended on raw materials. It manufactured things, and soon a high-tech industry grew. Today, Seattle is home to Microsoft and Amazon. But the new Northwest economy has come at a cost. Hanford Nuclear Reservation's site is contaminated with radioactive waste. Now Hanford is getting government money again to try to clean the site up. And the Grand Coulee Dam itself wreaked havoc on the environment. My name is Charlie Moses, Jr. My lineage on the... I have full blood, first of all. There's not a... Drop on non-Indian blood runs in my veins. Charlie Moses is a member of the Colville Confederated Tribes. Moses raises cattle on a ranch perched on a bench of land above the Columbia, a few miles downriver from the Grand Coulee Dam. He's 73, too young to remember when the dam began. But he's seen what it did to the reservation where he lives. The lake that backs up behind the dam flooded tribal lands. It submerged burial grounds. The old uh, town of Kellifer, for instance, was totally covered. And it took a lot of Indian allotments that were along the river. And of course, it uh, shut off our, the, the salmon runs to, to the river, and, and that was probably the biggest thing it created was uh, the fact that the salmon or the eels quit coming up river. The dam prevented salmon from coming upstream to spawn and wiped out the fish population. 
People knew at the time that the dam would harm the salmon, but preserving fish wasn't a priority. Most people were more interested in power and irrigation and jobs. The best memory I have of the dam back in about 48 or 49, my brother Harvey, and we lived all in our house up there on this peeling flat. At one time, there was 13 of us living in a three-room house. Uh, Harvey went to work for the dam, and so uh, we had some income coming into the family. Moses says many members of the tribe learned trades on the dam. Still, the tribe had lost rivers and lands and the salmon they had once depended on. The federal government agreed to compensate them, but the case took years to settle. The Native people didn't get any money until 1994. They got a lump sum of $53 million, and they'll continue to get more than $15 million a year as long as the dam produces electricity. Today, water flows from Grand Coulee Dam down a fantastically complex series of canals and pipes and siphons, a blue river rushing in straight concrete channels through the Washington desert out to farmers' sprinklers. An hour and a half south of the dam, on a farm near the town of Ephrata, Tim Frank is taking apart an onion planter in a big, tidy shop. Well, Tim, do those clean up pretty well and pretty easy? It takes about a half an hour to clean each one, yeah. to pull it apart. That's Tim's boss, Mick Qualls, checking in with him. He owns this place, Qualls Agricultural Labs. It's a farm and a laboratory for testing pesticides. What we do here is grow crops, up to 40 different crops. We have an apple orchard but that has both pears cherries. We have strawberries, asparagus. You have to keep those crops there in case a chemical company comes to you and says, Mick, we've got to do this test. On one wall in Qualls's office is a big satellite photo of this area. What you can see is that there's the Grand Coulee Dam. Now, it backs up Lake Roosevelt 150 miles. We're about 60 miles from the dam. In the satellite photo, you can see that we're surrounded by symmetrical rows of green circles on the land. But you're looking at 600,000 acres. The original uh, Roosevelt plan was a million acres, all of this. So you can see half of it didn't get developed, but now you can see all these little, every one of those little circles is 125 acres. These circles are all sprinklers. Qual says they need the sprinklers because they don't get any rain. Three and a half inches last year, less than Death Valley. And if something happened to that dam today, through terrorism or something that then this would all just go right back to desert. We couldn't grow anything here if it wasn't for, for our water. It turns out the highest corn yields in the United States are coming off these circles. The, uh, the great potato production for McDonald's, Burger King, Wendy's is all coming out of here. Qualls says one reason farmers here grow potatoes for processing is that processing plants have located here, where they can use the inexpensive electricity to make french fries. And other industry has come to the desert to take advantage of the cheap power. This kind of development was what Franklin Roosevelt said he had in mind when he championed the dam project. Industry for the future. Industry that couldn't even be imagined at the time. Scott Hunter is editor of the Star newspaper in the town of Grand Coulee. Because we have cheap electricity in this region, largely fueled by hydro dams, there are server farms. Server farms are clusters of computers to process huge amounts of data. They use a lot of electricity for cooling. They also need fiber optic cables, and this remote county has installed them. It's sort of reminiscent of the days when the dam was built. When Grand Coulee Dam went up, no one knew exactly what would be done with the electricity. And no one knows yet what else the fiber optic system may bring, though folks are pretty sure it will bring jobs to the desert. That's the story of technology. I'm sure that when the first guy picked up a stick, they didn't realize what they could do, all, all, everything they could do with it. The same thing happened with electricity. You're right. They put in the dam here, and the main reason at that time was uh, irrigation. But now we use a lot of electricity, and because it's here, we have this advantage here. Just down the street from Scott Hunter's office, the Grand Coulee Dam stretches across the river. It's not the biggest structure in the world anymore, but it's still colossal a vast sweep of stark concrete. If you stand near it, you can feel it thrum and hum with power. Wires swoop over the river to rows of metal towers that march up the dry hillsides. On one hill, up high, is an oversized bust of Franklin Roosevelt. He looks over the towns and the Indian reservation, the dam and the river, the canals carrying the water south, 
and the man-made lake that bears his name. This is Stephen Smith. Franklin Delano Roosevelt died in office in 1945. He was the only U.S. president to be elected four times. Roosevelt left behind a changed country with a different government and a different landscape. Historians disagree on how much effect the Roosevelt building projects had on the Depression, but there's no doubt that they did employ millions of people. Historian Richard Kirkendall says building infrastructure did stimulate the economy. It didn't bring the Depression to an end, but it reduced the magnitude of it, and it enabled people to survive who would have had an impossible or very difficult time surviving without it. And Kirkendall believes the work programs may have had another effect. They may have prevented hungry, angry people from staging a revolution. Historian Jason Scott Smith agrees. It's a bit of an oversimplification, to say the least, but it's worth noting that during the Great Depression, the United States elects FDR and continues to re-elect him, and Germany, by contrast, gets Hitler. Smith says in times of economic trouble, people sometimes turn to extreme solutions. This was a possibility in the United States, and the New Deal did a great deal of work to keep this from happening, in a sense. It's always hard to measure things by what didn't happen, but this should be counted in the New Deal's favor on the um, balance sheet of history, if you will. Jason Scott Smith and many other historians argue that the New Deal building programs laid the foundation for the wartime industry that finally lifted the country out of the Depression. And they literally paved the way for the economic development that continued after the war. New Deal workers built roads to ship goods, dams to make electricity for factories, airports that helped transport products and people. And they built places for a prosperous society to spend its leisure time. Their goal was to build a bridge to somewhere no one had yet been. A bridge to the future, where we live today. Bridge to Somewhere was produced by Catherine Winter and edited by Mary Beth Kirshner. We had help from Scott Hunter. The American Radio Works team includes Ocean Kalin, Sam Keenan, Mark Sanchez, Ellen Gettler, Emily Hanford, and Suzanne Pico. I'm Stephen Smith. You can learn about the contemporary infrastructure crisis from the public television project Blueprint America. Just visit our website at AmericanRadioWorks.org. And while you're there, you can see photographs of the Civilian Conservation Corps and other New Deal projects. You can download this and other American Radio Works programs and tell us what you think. That's at AmericanRadioWorks.org. Support for this program and the public television project Blueprint America was provided by the Rockefeller Foundation. American Radio Works is supported by the Batten Institute, the Research Center for Global Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business, www.battenninstitute.org. American Public Media.